Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Here we are at the beginning of a brand new year, 2021. So happy to have that miserable year 2020 behind us and looking forward, hoping and praying that this will be a much better year. But I'm really happy that you're here with me and I'm with you. We're able to come together around God's Word. And we left off on Friday. We've moved into the story of Jesus. Uh, and he launched his public ministry on Friday. After his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, now it's time to get to work. And we read in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Teaching, preaching, and healing. And I noted that teaching is explication of a text, preaching is application of a text, and healing, of course, validates Jesus' authority for what he's doing. After all, who can heal a paralyzed man simply by saying, rise and walk? Or who can raise the dead? No one can do that. Only God can do that. And if God chooses to do that through you, it suggests that you have a very intimate relationship with God. And the greater the miracle, the greater the healing or the raising of the dead, the more intimate the relationship. The more intimate is the implied relationship. So teaching, preaching, and healing. Certainly, Jesus had compassion on those who were ill, on those who had died, but he exercises that compassion as a sign of who he is and his authority as the Son of God. Now, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee in the north, the Decapolis, nine Gentile cities east of the Jordan, one west of the Jordan, Beit Shan or Sethopolis, Jerusalem in the south, Judea in the south, and the region across the Jordan, people were coming from all over. Now, there were many itinerant preachers in Jesus' day, but Jesus was truly a rock star. We move into chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And I described that mount to you, I think, on Friday. Jesus lives at Capernaum in Peter's house, and if you walk from Capernaum up, well, not a mountain, but a hill, that's the Mount of Beatitudes, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You can walk it in, oh, 20 to 30 minutes easily. So, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, that is the Mount of Beatitudes, and he sat down. The teacher taught in a seated position while the disciples and his students stood. I rather like that arrangement. I'm seated right now as I'm recording this podcast. I hope you are standing. <laughs> well, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Now, I noted as well on Friday 
that the Sermon on the Mount is a brilliant teaching consisting of four parts. Number one, a clever and memorable introduction, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and so on. And notice the repetition. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, for they shall be F, and so on. And the repetition of the word blessed. In the Greek, it's makarios. Jerome translated that in the Latin Vulgate as beatus, and hence we get the beatitudes. So we have that clever and memorable and counterintuitive introduction, followed by six propositions that exceed the law, and then six concrete actions to implement the law, and finally, a dramatic call to action. What are you going to do about what I've just said? So let's work through it, beginning with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that is completely counterintuitive. I would think, blessed are the rich in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But no, blessed are the poor in spirit. And notice, it's not blessed are the poor, period. There's nothing blessed about being poor. I've been poor, I've been not. Not is considerably better. But blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who look deeply into their own heart and recognize the gaping chasm, the big hole in their heart that nothing else can fill except God. Oh, you've tried everything. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You've tried success in business. You've tried any number of things, but you're still empty. You're poor in spirit. The first step toward an intimate relationship with God is to recognize your own interior poverty. That's step number one. That's where you begin. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are on the right path. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not mourned in the sense of bereavement, though that could certainly be part of it. But blessed are those who look into their own interior, into their own heart, recognize the inner poverty, and mourn over it. Desperately would like it to be something else, would like it to be filled with joy and happiness and the presence of God. They will be comforted. That's step number two. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, not those Casper milk toasts who, when challenged or confronted, hide under a desk and try to make themselves invisible. No, Moses. Moses was the man who went to Pharaoh, the greatest ruler in his day, and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And in Deuteronomy, we read that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. I love that because Deuteronomy is attributed to Moses himself. So imagine Moses saying, Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. I think there's a good point of humor in that. But blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
recognizing one's own interior poverty, mourning over that interior poverty, and taking a proper position before God. You know, so many of us want to be God in one way or another, want to put ourselves forward and make ourselves important. But recognizing that interior poverty, mourning over it, we recognize who we are relative to God. So many people think that, well, when I die and I move into the afterlife and I'm in the presence of the beatific vision of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that I'll see God seated on the throne and I'll be so happy to see him and he'll be happy to see me. And like a little child, I'll climb up in his lap and give him a hug. No, you won't. When you get there and you stand in the presence of God Almighty, creator of the universe, you'll be flat on your face before him, which is where you belong. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Step three. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who desperately want to be seen as right in the eyes of God, as correct as what we should be. It's one thing to recognize the interior poverty, to mourn over it, to take a proper position before God, but to desperately hunger and thirst for that right relationship with God. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Coming to that position of standing before God in the proper position, you look around at your friends, your family, and you can be critical. You know, I've, I've recognized my own interior poverty. I've mourned over it. I've, I've taken a proper position before God. And, and look at you. Just look at you. You're, you're proud. You're arrogant. No. Blessed are the merciful. Because you've been there, buddy. You've been there, my friends. All of us have been there. And when we move into a relationship with God, looking at others who are still on the outside, the proper position there is merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. All right, we move step by step, but now blessed are the pure in heart. It goes to motive. I'll say plainly, and I've said it in class, and many of you have been with me on teaching tours to Israel and Turkey and Greece and the Bible lands. And you know, why, why do we love God? Why do we love God? Is it for what we get? Well, if I'm in a proper relationship with God, if I'm right in his eyes, then I'll be rewarded good things. How about eternal life? How about blessings up one side and down the other? Do I love God for what he promises to give me? Or do I love God for who he is? 
I think that's a really important question to ask. What is your motive for wanting to be with God, wanting to be viewed as right in his eyes? It shouldn't be for what we get. It should be for who he is. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. If your motive for your relationship with God is proper, if you are merciful toward those who are still on the path to God or have yet to step on that path, if you are hungering and thirsting to be seen as right in God's eyes, if you are in a proper position before him, if you mourn over the emptiness of your own interior heart and life, you'll be a peacemaker. You'll be the instrument to bring other people into such a relationship, to make peace between one another and God. And they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you indeed follow this path of recognizing the poverty of your own interior heart, of mourning over the lack of fulfillment, of taking a proper place before God, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, of being merciful toward others who are on the way, and doing it in the right motives, and making peace with one another, and helping them make peace with God. You'll be persecuted, my friends. People aren't going to look at you and say, oh my, what a nice person. No, many people out there in the world will look at you with scorn and ridicule. Oh well, it goes with the territory. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. Because if you follow this path, people will persecute you, they will mock you and ridicule you. So blessed are you when they do so and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, not because of you, but because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the very same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, I've taught through the Bible, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation, including the Deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha, many times now. And as we work our way through the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, and we meet the prophets, I can't think of a single prophet who is admired in his own time. A prophet, by definition, speaks to the people on behalf of God. A priest in the Hebrew Scriptures speaks to God on behalf of the people. There are the two sides of one coin. But the king is the third figure in that triumvirate. The king. 
And when you speak to the people on behalf of God, quite often you're speaking against the status quo, against the king, and you'll be persecuted. Oh my goodness, just look at the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, squirting tears at every turn. How many of the prophets were persecuted, were beaten and stoned and killed? If you're going to be an authentic person of God, you got to have courage. You have to have commitment. And you have to have it for the right reasons. Because along with that commitment, along with your position before God, along with your position in the world, walking through this world, persecution will come your way. Think about that. Each and every one of us is born into this life. We step onto the stage of life and we walk across that stage in our 70 or 80 years for those who are strong, as Moses writes in Psalm 90. And then we step off the stage. And while we're walking across that stage, the spotlight is following us. If we're going to be an example, a light to the world, You've got to put yourself out there. And when you do, trouble will surely come your way. We're called to a life of heroic faith. God didn't create you to be mediocre. He created you to be heroic. And the first step in that kind of heroism is recognizing your own interior poverty, mourning over it, placing yourself before God in a proper position, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful to those who are not yet on the path and those who are having a difficult time on the path, having the right motives for a relationship with God, making peace with one another and with God and be willing to be persecuted. In summary, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. I was always puzzled by that. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Well, salt is salt. It can't lose its saltiness. How does this work? How does this metaphor work? You, you, know, you are like the salt of the earth. No, you are the salt of the earth. And I remember growing up and, and in a Bible class when I was in elementary school, and we had a teacher, Mrs. McGinnity, who was the oldest woman I've ever known in my whole life. She must have been 70 years old at the time. <laughs> but... Uh, we were reading this, or she was reading it to us, and she said, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? And one of the my classmates, Rika Hess, oh, I had a crush on her at the time, she said, salt makes you thirsty. We're to make people thirsty for God. Well, that was a pretty darn good answer for a grade school child. Yet, I, I was still a little shaky on it because how can salt lose its saltiness? 
It's no longer good for anything. We were in Egypt and visiting a Bedouin tribe out in the wilderness. Not a tourist place, but an actual Bedouin community. Very hospitable people. And uh, we sat in their tent around a fire, and two women were baking bread over the fire. The way you bake the bread is to dig a hole in the ground, fill it with twigs and leaves and so on, and then light the fire, and over top of it put a, an inverted metal dome. The dome heats up, and the women made the dough and spun it much like a pizza, and flopped it down on the dome. And sure enough, it cooks very quickly. And with a stick, would pick it up and move it around to make sure it didn't stick to the dome, then flip it over, cook the other side, take it off, break it up, and pass the pieces around to us. And it was mighty good bread, I can tell you. And then they made a second and a third, but then the fire began to die down. And one of the women took a stick, lifted up the dome, reached in a little pouch that she had by her side, threw something in the fire, and it flared back up again. What was that? I asked. It was salt from the Dead Sea that had a very high content of magnesium, which flares up when thrown into the fire. So that salt from the Dead Sea can indeed lose its quality of making the fire. That's what we're to be. We're to be the salt of the earth. We're to catch people on fire for God, to heat them up, to make them want to know him, to, to love him, to serve him. You are the salt of the earth. The earth. And when we were leaving the Bedouins, one of the women who was cooking the bread said, I hope you enjoyed the earthen oven. They simply referred to that kind of oven as the earth, the salt of the earth. And then another metaphor, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the very same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. From the Mount of Beatitudes, which, if we look at the Sea of Galilee as a clock, the Mount of Beatitudes is about 10.30, maybe 11 o'clock on that clock. And when you're seated on the Mount of Beatitudes, on the hillside, the concave hillside, and you're looking toward the Sea of Galilee, on the other side, the eastern side, is the Golan Heights, where the Decapolis cities were located. Nine of them over there on the Golan, one of them on the east side, south of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Beit Shan or Scythopolis. But at night, if you're seated on that hillside at night, you can see over on the Golan the lights of those cities. Well, in Jesus' day, you could see the light too. So Jesus, you know, I don't think he ever made up a parable. He never invented 
an example? He simply took what was around him. When he said, you are the light of the world, he turned and he pointed over toward the Golan. And he said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Put it on a stand. Be the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, that's a bang-up beginning to a great teaching. And it's very memorable. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, E for they shall be F. And so on. Each statement counterintuitive. Each statement clever. And Jesus simply points to things around him as he's teaching. This is great teaching methodology. So the clever and memorable introduction. On Wednesday, we'll move to six propositions that exceed the law. It's good to be back with you here in a brand new year. Please keep the prayers coming my way that this year might be much better than last, and I'll keep my prayers coming in your direction as well. We all deserve a break coming up. That is for sure. Okay, bye-bye now. See you on Wednesday. Thank you.